Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer is here. She covers education for Oklahoma Watch, and her latest Education Watch newsletter revealed how the new superintendent of education will end up earning more than the governor. Jennifer, uh, Ryan Walters was recently sworn in as state superintendent. What's his other role? It was reported uh, in the Tulsa world that Ryan Walters will also continue to serve as Secretary of Education. That is a cabinet position that he's held since 2020. And he gets the salary from the state for both of those jobs. Is that right? That's right. Both both jobs come with a state salary. The superintendent, um, by statute, is a little over $124,000 a year. And for the secretary position, it's $40,000 a year. So uh, what surprised you about that? Well, one thing that surprised me is when you add those two salaries together, it's more than the governor. The governor, under state statute, earns $147,000 a year. Now, uh, can he do both jobs or is there a conflict of interest there? He can, and there is some precedent for that. Um, I, I know I... I've had some people say that, um, you know, there there was definitely some comments on the newsletter that he sh- maybe shouldn't do both jobs. They have pretty different um, roles, and um, there is precedent for um, folks doing both. Now, uh, what are the respective duties of each job? So for state superintendent, the main job under state statute is to oversee and direct the Department of Education. Um, That includes adopting policies, making rules, um, all of those things, managing the department, right? Um, And it's also the job of the state superintendent to advise the Board of Education. Um, They're chairman of that board. Um, The Secretary of Education is different. Like I said earlier, it's a cabinet level position. So the main goal of that job is to advise the governor on things related to education, such as policy changes or problems. And the secretary of education also oversees OEQA, which is a state agency that handles like teacher certification and teacher college prep programs. All right. And uh, did you get any feedback? You mentioned you got a little bit uh, on your Education Watch newsletter. I sure did. I got a lot of um, emails and and folks that wanted to know if that was um, if that was legal, if he could do both jobs. Um, Many people suggested um, having a lawyer look over that or the AG maybe would take that up um, to see if it was um, acceptable under state statute to do both of those. I even had readers sending me um, statutes to look at to see um, if if that specific statute would prevent um, someone from holding both roles. Back up for just a minute, because you did say there has been some precedent for this in the past. And it's uh, my recollection, it's not the only position where someone has been an agency head and uh, held a cabinet position at the same time. Terry White did that uh, when she was uh, running the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. Others have 
uh, had similar positions where they ran an agency and were in the cabinet as well. So why why do you think uh, this particular combination raised eyebrows when when this is something that's happened many times in the past? I think the major difference is that in the past, when folks have filled both roles, they did not take both salaries. So to me, that we, we could not find another instance where someone who served in both uh, capacities in a cabinet and a department head also collected both salaries. Now, the Board of Education meets this week, don't they? That's right. Thursday morning, 930 is a scheduled um, State Board of Education meeting. It'll be the first for Ryan Walters as uh, state superintendent. And there are also um, four new board members on that board. So it should be interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, You can read all of Jennifer's investigative work about education and subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch, by visiting our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, he wrote about the state legislature's recent bill filing deadline and what lies ahead in the upcoming session. Keaton, how many total bills did Oklahoma lawmakers introduce this year ahead of that January 19th deadline? In both chambers, it was just short of 3,100 bills and joint resolutions that, that are up for consideration this year. That uh, it's a big number, but that seems like fewer than most years. Yeah, I'd have to. I don't know if I. I need to go back and get the exact numbers, but uh, yeah, that that could very well be seems the case. Like Four thousand a lot of years is the the number. So thirty one hundred, a lot of bills, but not a record setter. Yeah, for sure. What's the next step for all those proposals? So floor leaders will start going through all of them and assigning them to certain committees and their chamber of origin. And uh, they'll go to the committee. Uh, the committee leaders will decide whether or not to hear them. Um, if they hear them, they're voted on. And then they can, if they pass, they can continue on through the process. If they're not heard, they're kind of dead in the water. So that's the the next step there. Well, in in recent legislative sessions, uh, how many of the filed bills survive that first deadline? Uh, it's it's usually less than half percent, or so, excuse me, less than half. Um, so it's it's you know a bill being filed doesn't guarantee that that it will get through and be voted on by the full legislature for sure. Now, uh, there's always uh, the several hundred proposals that are just shell bills that don't contain any substantial language. Uh, how do lawmakers flesh those proposals out later on? Yeah, so they'll they'll typically be assigned to a rules committee where the lawmakers will have to come up with that substantive language in order for them to get through the process. Usually that's, uh, you know, f- I believe it's four weeks or so after the, the session starts is the deadline for that um, in most cases. So they'll have to go through and the success rate for those shell bills is even lower than the bills that, that have that substantive language, uh, which makes sense when you start going through them. And, you know, in one of my areas of focus, uh, elections and votings, I noticed, I believe it was 20 or so of these shell bills called the Oklahoma election reform act of 2023. And you had several different house authors of these bills, um, all with the same language that uh, 
wouldn't do anything with how they're written right now. So um, you'll see a lot of these show bills titled the same with different authors. And then it's up for them to go to this committee to get fleshed out. And um, that's when you'll see if, if they continue or not. Now, there are a few other exceptions uh, that allow lawmakers to draft and introduce bills as the session progresses. Can you elaborate on that process? Sure. So you have uh, appropriations bills dealing with the state budget that that can be introduced later on in the session, as well as the the Senate president and the House speaker can uh, have the authority to, to introduce legislation as the session progresses as well. So um, we have a better idea than we did a week or two ago, for sure, of what's coming, but not the full picture quite yet. Now, if listeners come upon a bill that they're particularly interested in, how might they track that? Sure. If if you go to the OK Legislature website, uh, of course, if you know a bill number, you can search that and get the information on there. Uh, but you can also go to what's called the LIN system. Um, if you go to the legislation tab, on the legislature's webpage and click on that, uh, create an account with your email. Um, you can sign up for email alerts for that legislation. So you'll uh, get updates sent to you as it continues in the process and, uh, you know, goes and, and is voted on or, or not. So um, that's one helpful way to stay up to speed there. Well, in addition to just knowing uh, the status of a bill, uh, what kind of feedback can the public give? So technically, committee leaders can allow public comment as a bill is being voted on. That that doesn't happen or it hasn't happened in recent years. Um, we did a story about it a couple of years ago um, about how, you know, it, it's allowed, but these leaders won't, uh, you know, won't take the time to let the public come in and, and speak, which maybe you can get on one hand, it will might drag it on a little bit, but also, you know, a lot of other states do it and it can be, you know, helpful if the public is, is involved in the process, but uh, that hasn't happened in recent years, probably won't happen again this year. Um, so probably the best bet is just trying to reach out personally, you know, a phone call or an, an email to your lawmaker. Well, I know uh, when I've talked to uh, legislators, uh, they really don't get a lot of direct communication from their constituents and that an email about a proposed piece of legislation gets their attention. A phone call really gets their attention. And if you drop by the Capitol and visit them in person, uh, they're definitely going to hear what you have to say uh, and take your views into consideration when they're when they're voting on a bill. Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, when will the lawmakers start voting on those measures? Uh, so the session convenes on Monday, February 6th. That's where when Governor Stitt will give his state of the state address and kind of kick things off. And then you'll see in the in the days and weeks after that, the committees will start getting together. Uh, we'll start voting on these proposals. Um, and then March 2nd is the deadline for bills to pass out of their committee of origin. So that's, you know, about four weeks or so um, from the start of the session. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can follow all of Keaton's work on the democratic process on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also sign up to receive Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch.
I'm with Lionel Ramos, who covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. He was in Clinton last week investigating the closure of the city's hospital and five urgent care clinics. That's left the area's most vulnerable people with few options for care. Lionel, what'd you find out there? A community uh, really dealing with the loss of, of hospital services that they'd had since the early 1970s. Um, Clinton Regional Hospital was was built then, and since then it's been through a variety of contractual healthcare providers. Uh, most recently, as of 2012, um, Alliance Health out of uh, Nashville, Tennessee, is a private company that has been running the operations there. And it chose not to renew its lease for the hospital building, which is owned by the city. So it was renting out the building to run operations, and lease is terminated, and they're not going to renew it. Um, the five clinics that also closed, uh, four of them are in Clinton. One of them is in Weatherford. Now, uh, who's most affected by those closures? You know, I spoke to uh, a nurse when I was down there uh, earlier this week. And in her words, you know, this trickles down to the same people. Things like this always do. Uh, the elderly, the very young, the disabled, uh, the impoverished, uh, those with no cars and no phones to dial 911. Uh, I met an amputee uh, with a rash on his leg. And he's got no way to treat it. He's got no car. He's got no phone. Uh, he's who works security at the homeless shelter there in Clinton, uh, the Clinton Mission House. Now, do we know the reason Alliance Health uh, decided not to renew that lease? Not exactly. I haven't been able to get anyone on the phone. I've been sending, <laughs> I've been making a lot of calls um, and they've all been responded to via email. But what I do know, based on those email responses that I got from Alliance, um, a month before Alliance Health notified Clinton that it would that it wouldn't be renewing the lease last January. It had closed down its obstetrics unit, uh, its OB unit where mothers have their babies um, because of staffing shortages and low patient volume. And that's important because Alliance is a non is a sorry not a nonprofit is a for profit corporation, and if they're not making money, they don't want to be in a place. Um, it's not just about the lease though. Alliance also canceled its state and federal licenses to operate a hospital, which are more important than the lease itself because uh, that can be renewed with another entity. These licenses have to be applied for with the state and the federal government. All right. So no hospital in Clinton. Where do people go in an emergency? Those who can drive or have cars can go to Weatherford. Cordell or Elk City for emergencies. Those towns are about 15 to 30 minutes out, depending on which one you go to. Um, the issues mostly arise with those who can drive, though, or or don't have those modes of transportation. Uh, all of a sudden, a 15-minute wait and in a trip to the hospital in an ambulance becomes a 30-minute to an hour-long trip uh, for the ambulance to get to you and back to the hospital in one of those cities. Um, so that's where they're going. Cordell is about 15 minutes. Elk City is about 30 minutes out. Um, those are the options people have left with. What about the staff at uh, the Clinton Hospital and the clinics? Do they just lose their jobs? Does Alliance move them somewhere else? What happens? So they were Alliance employees, and yes, they did lose their jobs. 192 people lost their jobs, uh, according to a letter from Alliance to the Oklahoma Workforce and Development Commission. Um, this includes doctors, nurses, radiologists, uh, other important staff, like the kitchen staff, for example, apparently Clinton Regional had really good food. Um, the kitchen staff in particular were contractual workers. They were hired by Alliance, though, to do that job. And without the lease, without the hospital, they're out of a job as well. 
You know, uh, Clinton uh, residents surely are concerned about that. Is there anything uh, they can do? Well, um, besides the city applying for licensure to reopen with the state and the federal government, uh, they're doing a few other things. There is an $11.3 million earmarked value that the uh, Clinton Hospital Authority has basically put aside after a deal with Integris years ago, almost 20 years ago at this point. Um, and they need to have a vote <laughs> to see if they can use that amount for things like renovations and and um, back pay for some of the, or retention pay, I should say, for some of the employees that have been let go. Um, they also are doing an intra-fund borrow. So the city of Clinton is loaning $1.5 million to the Clinton Hospital Authority to reopen and do some of those remodelings as well in the interim before that vote, which is happening in March. Um, there's also efforts to open an urgent care clinic at the site of the hospital in the interim, but the details of that have been pretty sparse coming from the city. And one doctor I spoke to, in fact, the former chief of staff, uh, said he'd not heard anything about that. Um, beyond those options, it's largely a waiting game uh, without a clear timeline. Now, I know that uh, also in western Oklahoma, it wasn't that long ago that uh, the city of Sayre lost a hospital and that, that meant people had to make uh, 15 or 20 minute uh, eastward drive to Elk City to the nearest facility. Um, anywhere else where we're seeing this happen, we've heard a lot about problems with rural hospitals. Oh, yeah. All over the country. Uh, one study out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill shows that 184, 184 rural hospitals have shuttered since 2005. 141 of those were since 2010. In Oklahoma, that number in that data set is uh, eight since the since 2005 in places like Wilburton and Muskogee in the east and Sayre and El Reno in the west. Um, but I'm actually waiting on an open records request for the state's most up-to-date number on that. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. Uh, you can read all of Lionel's coverage of the closure of the Clinton Hospital and those urgent care facilities on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.